We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in. Wow, what a week it was. I hope you're okay. I hope we're okay. Um, well, it certainly feels better now that the election is behind us. And it looks like soon we will be able to go to some kind of normal that is closer to an actual normal. We can actually start talking about something fun, like surfing. <laughs> My guest this week knows a thing or two about that. Damien Farenfort is a South African professional surfer, famous and one may even say notorious in the surf world for his blog Duma's Rumors that is no longer active but for years was a source of controversy in the world of professional surfing. Damien now lives in Los Angeles and in the last 10 years he has had an interesting career going from content creation at Quicksilver to launching the US version of the surf magazine Stab to running an apparel boutique in Venice Beach. He is now an athlete manager to two world championship tour surfers, Jordy Smith and Michael February, and a co-founder of Free Radicals, an advertising and marketing agency. We talk a lot about his journey from being a professional athlete to becoming a businessman and, of course, his transition from South Africa to the U.S. We recorded the conversation before the election and we talked about our concerns that I know many of you shared. But something else came up in the conversation that relates to the current situation in the U.S. And it has to do with race and racism. So just a quick historic note here to refresh your memory. Very broad strokes, so forgive me for skipping a lot of important information here. So South Africa, the cradle of humankind, according to UNESCO, People have been, some kind of humans have been living there from about three million years ago. Jump cut to 17th century when South Africa was colonized by the Dutch and the British. And even though slavery was banned in South Africa since 1833, as the rest of British Empire, racial segregation persisted. Afrikaners the ethnic group descended from the Dutch, the white minority, that is less than 20% of population, controlled the black majority. And in 1948, apartheid was legally institutionalized, a system of racial segregation, basically an authoritarian white supremacy. It existed until 1990 when International pressure and fears of an actual racial civil war forced the then president of South Africa, de Klerk, release political prisoners who were fighting for 
racial equality, including Nelson Mandela, who was by that time imprisoned for 27 years. In 1994, South Africa had its first multiracial election, and Nelson Mandela became the president. His administration focused on racial reconciliation. And of course, South Africa is dealing with racial tensions to this day. And we talk about it with Damien. But there may be some important lessons in that period of South African history for us to look at and reflect on. I will jump in one more time in the middle of the interview to give you a little more context specific to a very special moment that Damien describes. But for now, here's my chat with Damien Farenfort. I can only imagine how much is going on in life. Happy, happy, happy new baby. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. She's she's a bit over a week old today. So uh, it's been, it's pretty full on, but you know, it's like there's so much going on, but there's also not a whole lot because you just kind of have to, you're just around waiting for things to happen. <laughs> busy, like just going for a shower is a big deal. <laughs> like right? All the baby and then she's screaming. So we just uh, finally discovered a pacifier for her that like she likes. That's a game changer. So you just pop that in the mouth. That, that's an important uh, discovery. Wow. You are now a father to an American citizen. Yeah, we were talking about it yesterday. It's going to be really funny when she has, oh, it's going to be strange when she has an American accent one day, right? Like to have this little child with an American accent. <laughs> uh, it's going to be weird. So I'm trying to implement as much of my South African accent on her as possible. Yeah, make her weird. She's going to have one messed up accent. No one's going to be able to understand her. And, you know, it's... <laughs> Great. Do that. Do that. Um, and is, uh, does your wife have an accent? No, no, she's American. She's she's Mexican American, but she grew up here, so she doesn't okay. have an accent. Well, it's funny. American people think they don't have accents. They think that's just how. I've had a bunch of people this conversation with a bunch of people where they go like, "Well, I don't have an accent." I'm like, "Well, you do. You have an American accent." They're like, "No, that's just how people speak." I'm like, "No, that is <laughs> that's an American accent." Like, yeah, normally just ends with me telling them they're ridiculous and going the other way. So I usually start with two questions: When did you come to the states, and where did you come here from? So I moved in 2009 from South Africa. I'd been living in, I grew up in Cape Town, uh, which is kind of the most Southern part. And then I'd moved to Durban because the surfing is much better. I was surfing professionally. So I was competing at this event, this international event. I was sponsored by Billabong at the time and they were sponsoring the event and the whole American team was out from the company. And they were like, hey, why don't you move to America? And before I could even think about it, I was had committed to moving and like literally like four or five days later, and this was in August, Septemberish, and I moved over in the December of 2009, like kind of December 24th of, Dece- of 2009. Wow, that that's rapid. Yeah, it was quick. It was just, I was just like, yeah, why not? And I, I did actually have a girlfriend at the time, but it wasn't that serious. And I just thought, you know, when am I going to get an opportunity to live in the US again and, and be here and, you know, and just be able to experience and have this kind of support getting over there. At the same time, my best friend who, who I was traveling and surfing with, his name is Jordy Smith. He had kind of just hit the big time and there was just all this attention around him surfing. And he is kind of basing himself out of the USA because it was uh, a bit more, just made a bit more sense financially for him because it's where all the big brands were and all the sponsorship was. So it was, so it made the transition quite easy because I kind of just kind of rode his coattails in because everybody was making all this fuss around him. So he was just like, I was just this plus one everywhere. So I had a nice introduction. <laughs> I lived in the in a garage for a little while when I first moved oh. here. Nothing too 
the who figure. doesn't? <laughs> exactly. It's either it's either garage or friend's couch, or I've recently heard an extravagant story of living in, on a boat. It's very LA too. Yeah, that is. So I did a couple of nights on a boat. Uh, this was a go. few years later, um, <laughs> thinking it would be like really cool to live on a boat. And and then my friend had this boat that was in Newport Harbor, and he said to me, uh, he was my, actually my boss, and he's and I was in between moving places. He's like, why don't you just live on my boat because I need somebody to stay on it. Well, he had just bought it on like a whim off the financial crisis, somebody needed to get rid of it quickly and he had bought it, right? So he's like, I need somebody to stay on it if it's going to be parked in that area of the harbor. So I did two nights on there and it's not this like sexy, like like romantic thing that you think it is. It's just on a boat and it's salty and there's like these dirty sailors that live on their boats next to you because you're not parked at like, the, you know, there's all these like million dollar yachts up the, up the corner, but you're like <laughs> in this section over here with the, with the, like the hillbillies that sleep on their boats. And <laughs> one night I woke up, there's a guy shooting a gun. I was like, fuck, I'm out of here. Yeah. yeah, I heard similar stories. So yeah, that that fits. So anybody who's moving to LA, beware of uh, free yeah. boat stay. Exactly. I'm desperate. Yeah. Um, wow. So so let's back it up a little bit to to back to South Africa, uh, and I'll tell you what angle I kind of want to go into it because uh, we're similar age, right? And um, we come from completely different parts of the world. I'm from Russia, you're from South Africa. But as I was researching, I realized that, I didn't know that, that apartheid ended in 91. And so did Soviet Union. I didn't know that either. Fascinating. Right? For me, the end of Soviet Union was kind of like the first memory of my life. I literally... That's the first consistent kind of scene that I remember my parents finding out over the radio because we were in the woods in the backcountry. And that's where we found out that the country we're living is is no longer. Uh, and of course, the country has been going through a gigantic transition since then. And it's still in the process. I don't know much about how things were in South Africa as you were growing up in the 90s and how the country was transitioning. So tell me a little bit about that. That's really interesting. And quick question, what, what, what was your parents' reaction when they found out? Because you said you can, you, you, it's so clear in your head, that memory. They were scared, but they were very excited at the same time. They were worried that the, uh, it, the country may turn to violence and that there may be a civil war. And it was a serious uh, fear at the time, um, but they were happy that the that the regime has fallen. So that's what happened. And I, those are like I can kind of remember those conversations in South Africa when I was young, because what so many people saw, because Nelson Mandela came out of prison in 1990, kind of apartheid ended in 1991. So many people started like applying to Australia, all these different countries, because what they thought, they obviously knew the ANC was Af African National Congress. They were the party of Nelson Mandela's. They were obviously going to win just because of the pure numbers and the masses. And it was the first time there was allowed to be a black party. Um, so they they were obviously going to win. And people were so afraid that it was going to be like the civil war, war or more so reverse apartheid, right? That you're about to like suppress the whites. They were going to come into your home, take your home and like send you off in the yeah. street, which, you know, if, if if you knew anything about Nelson Mandela, you knew that was never going to happen. My, I grew up really lucky. My parents were very liberal, and I grew up in a small town, so there was. I never felt that. Um, I never felt that kind of racial tension growing up. I just there was always just 
black people and people of color around me growing up. So it wasn't a big thing. And, and, and those because, you know, it was kind of on the way out already in Cape Town. It was already kind of because Cape Town is such a liberal place. It was kind of filtering through. Like Cape Town oh. had a big gay, a huge gay population too. It's one of the capital, gay capitals of the world. So it was very a bit more open than the rest of South Africa. Um, not as Afrikaans. Afrikaans is, you know, the, the part of us that are colonized by the Dutch. And uh, that's, that's a dialect that we have. And those are the ones that caused apartheid or um, started it. And so those areas were still pretty radical. And there's a lot more racial tension than places like Cape Town. That was, you know, Cape Town would be equivalent to like a Venice beach or something, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, but my first year of school, was the first year that black kids and white kids went to school together. So, yeah, so I remember that. Like, I remember my mom telling me that she got a call from the principal of the school, like, saying, hey, I know your son's enrolled next year. Well, you know, just so you know, you know, there will be the kids from the township and the local community, kids of color coming in, like, are you okay with that? And my mom was like, oh, absolutely. But a lot of parents weren't. And they were like, mm-hmm. they didn't know what to expect. And they didn't want, you know, they people are just afraid of change and afraid of what they don't know. Not to say mm-hmm. that everyone was racist they, because they didn't want to send their kid to that school. They just didn't know what to expect, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so the transition was pretty good. But what I can remember, like, you know, you have that memory of being in the woods with your parents. I have this memory of in 1994, South Africa won. Nelson Mandela had just become president. And South Africa, there's a movie about it in Victus. But South Africa won the World Cup rugby. And for us, like, national sports is such a big deal, right? It's not like America it's so big that – you have like your own world series within America, right? Mm-hmm. It's like yep. everybody, everybody stops what they're doing on a, you know, on a Sunday and watches rugby. If the country's playing or soccer it's, and whatever, there's a cricket. So we're in the world cup. We had made the final playing against New Zealand. And right before that, there was all this controversy because um, what's it called? Affirmative action had been introduced, right? So there had to be X and of numbers of black players on the team leading up to the World Cup. So naturally, it's going to be a bit more difficult to get as far because you've got these guys that have only been playing at this high level for a few years versus all the other countries have been training for, you know, training these guys for 10, 15 years. So it was, there was a lot of uncertainty and, and rugby is such an Afrikaans sport. So mm. it just killed these Dutchmen, these Afrikaners, that were these black guys on this team, right? <laughs> and and then and then you had them make the final and then everyone thought they were going to get blown away in the final and everyone was just like excited that they made the final and then they won the final right and wow. Nelson Mandela was there and it was at Ellis Park in South Africa which is you know, and there's an iconic photo of the whole thing going down I got like goosebumps just thinking about it but me it's too just, <laughs> just imagining hey it's me so this is the little interruption that I promised you in the beginning here's an audio snippet of that game that Damien is talking about to give you the feel of that moment in history. And the first person you'll hear is Francois Pinard, the captain of the South African team. And he just stood there and he had this aura and he just said, good luck. That's, that's just all he said. And then he turned around and there was this number six on his back and that was me. He said, I was so emotional. Await the national anthems. A very emotional moment for both teams. South African national anthems. We adopted a motto, one team, one country, because we realized that this competition is for everyone in South Africa, and to do well in this competition will make everyone in South Africa proud. We underestimated how proud it would make South Africa. Thank 
momentous occasion. And just looking even at the flags and the supporters there, I can't tell you how much this place has changed in the last three years. When we came to see the first match back after isolation, it was all the old South African flag. There still wasn't a black face to be seen. But now it really is this rainbow nation all behind their team. There it is. Francois Pinar and Nelson Mandela is cheering along with the whole of the stadium. A sea of flags. Wonderful moment for the whole of South Africa. We hardly believed it could happen for them, but it has. And now the celebrations, I'm sure, will go on for at least a week. And now back to the interview. In that moment, like the racial tension just went from here, like down to here. And like you had the most racist Afrikaans white man, like out on the streets hugging a black man, right? Because it was just like this. And that's what sports does. That's what's so great about sports, right? Is it brings people together and it kind of eases those tensions and it, and it allows us to see what you might not have seen in a person before. You're able to see and have an appreciation. So like, you know, you can appreciate humanity. Exactly, just basically, right? Yeah, or just get, allows them to get to know someone or perceive to know someone. Yeah. You know, fast forward 2019, South Africa wins the World Cup in Japan last year with a black captain. You know, Sia uh-huh. Sia Khaleesi, his, that's his name, and you know, he's the black captain of the South African team. So, and that again, like South Africa was kind of at a at a, at a bit of like a melting point again, where it was going to tip over. Either way, there's been a lot of racial tension in the last couple of years, and again, that like eased it and kind of suppressed it down because. What we've got now in South Africa is that older generation on both sides of, of South Africa that needs to kind of die out and let the new generation come. Because I look at my sister, she's 10 years younger than me and her generation is just so like, they're just so interconnected, right? There's not like black, white, they just see each other for, for, for one another, right? For person to person, which is very nice. And, you know, they, they have parents on both sides that are, you know, still, they were suppressed from the old days. So there's still that kind of underlying anger, which for good reason there is, you know, and then you've got the... The white parents on the other side that are like still fearful that they, they're going to lose their home or whatever it is, right? Because of the government. And then you've got like much like Donald Trump. Do they Trump, have a got, reason to fear to lose their home? No, not at all. Like, I mean, listen, if you're like white and Savaric, you're doing pretty good. It's like being middle class in America, right? It's, you know, don't have much to worry about. Um, That's why I'm asking. I don't know how you felt earlier this year when there were the riots all over the country, but. Um, but I had this moment where I almost, almost called my dad and told him, dad, I'm scared, but I didn't. Um, and that is the my big fear here with the election coming up. And I don't know, I might cut this out, but... <laughs> no, I was, I was early when we uh, first started talking about this, I was going to say much like what's going on here. Like, you know, that feeling that you had when you're in the woods with your parents, like there could be a civil war. Like, no, I don't think it will get to that point, but there's... They, you know, here again, we're so lucky, like in California, we can put our head in the sand and pretend it's not really existing. Now we saw like some looting and that kind of thing down the road from us to a degree, but it was never quite like where I think we truly fear. But now like there's other places in America, I think you saw what happened yeah. in Philadelphia, Philadelphia a few nights ago, um, shot someone, beat up cops fighting. It's, it's going to get crazy. So now Donald Trump loses. He goes and tweets out like, you know, to the proud boys, bring all those psychos with guns. That's because that's the, the scariest thing about the US is just the access to guns. Like, I hate guns, and I've thought about getting a gun to protect myself from the crazies with guns. Same. 
Even I thought about that, and I'm, I don't even know how to shoot one. No, neither do I. I hate them. I hate the sound of them, the, everything. Um, but I've thought about getting one because I'm like, what if I need to escape? You know, like, what if we need to get out? And, you know, my, yeah. you know I'm, on, I'm on the understanding of if one person has a gun, the situation can be uh, de-escalated. But if two people have a gun, it, you know, there's a much higher chance of both people walking away alive if one person has a gun versus two people have a, having a gun. So that's kind of where I left it. But, you know, the, the fact that the thoughts crossed my mind in California is insane. Yeah. Is, it is, isn't it? For months now, I've been waking up and terrified to read the news, which never has been the case. Uh, I just can't wait for the election to be over. <laughs> Me too. I'm like, whatever the result is at this stage, I just want it to be over. Um, like obviously, I don't want... No, 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 no. Not Trump. whatever the result is. <laughs> no, I, Trump, I obviously want him to lose. I would cut off my picky finger if it meant guaranteeing that he lost. Um, but That's like, a strong statement. At least, at least whatever it is, we can just go forward with our lives, right? Versus just being lost in the news. And it's crazy that because this episode's going to go up after the election. So uh, we'll see. This is going to be... <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. This is the first time I ever voted in my life. Oh, you have yeah. voted. Yeah, You're a voted. I'm not a citizen. Well, thank yeah. you for doing your, yeah. your duty. Voted for Kanye West, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I did when I became a citizen, in, I became a citizen on March 24th, I think it was, and uh-huh. which I'm pretty sure that when I went to the event, like the, the citizenship uh, ceremony, I'm pretty uh-huh. sure that was a super spreader event of COVID-19. It was like 15,000 people there. This is like two weeks before lockdown, right? Wow. Um, oh, it was yes. huge. I think there was 7,500 applicants Oh, people that were in process, plus everyone had guests and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's very cool, you know. It's, it's it's an amazing feeling and they get up and talk and they kind of tell you what it means. And there's an amazing – this is what I think America keeps forgetting and Americans and maybe less so in California, but this judge got up and there's a judge that kind of presides over the, you know, the whole ceremony. And he got up and he said a speech and he, he talked about his – his great granddad coming over from Ireland on a boat, and you know they came here in the generations, and you know they worked. His great grandparents worked themselves to the bone to be able to make a life for his parents, and you know now he's a judge, and you know you've got this amazing mm-hmm. life, and it's kind of lineage now, and that's what he's. And then he kind of the overarching part of his story, theme of his story was everybody here is an immigrant, unless you're a Native American, you're an immigrant, and that's yes. what America is built on. It's built on immigrants, and you know it's still to this day the immigrants are building America. They're doing the hard work, and you. Well, actually, that uh, takes me back to, to your childhood. How did you grow up? It's funny. When I moved here, uh, especially to Venice, people would be like, I'd hang out with like all these, <clears throat> I kind of had friends from both sides of the fence in Venice, uh, like or it's like OG <laughs> Venice, like Mexican dudes that grew up there, born and raised, and then like, you know, the new wealthy kind of Venice grew right? And that's mm-hmm. what's so great about surfing is you've kind of got, it's just this hodgepodge of everybody. And mm-hmm. uh, it's the great like equalizer, right? Like it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how rich you are, what you've got. It's like who serves the best in the water. So you kind of make <laughs> friends on both sides. But my Mexican friends and the guys that were born in Venice and raised in Venice, when Venice was a hectic place, you know, in the early nineties, mm-hmm. late eighties, and that even probably early two thousands with the gangs and all that, they would always be like, "Man, like you from South Africa? That's like that's that's hectic. Like that's crazy. That's crazy." I'd be like. <laughs> Actually, I grew up like on the beach in like a beautiful little town. <laughs> so, <laughs> not as tough as you think I am. But I grew up, I grew up very like middle class, two working parents. Um, had an, in South Africa, like everybody has nannies because it's a form of employment. Um, like everyone has house cleaners and that because it's the biggest form of employment in South Africa. So, mm. like anyone that's middle class, even if you're like you know on the lower end of middle class or poor, you have a house cleaner. Because you're out working yeah. and it's just so cheap to to employ people from the townships, right? 
much like I think Thailand or those kind of places. Uh, you know, Got it. Yeah. And that. Um, so I'm pretty middle class. I had two working parents. Very like I had a black adopted brother. He wasn't like legally adopted, but he lived with us from I think we met when we were five or six. Uh, his name's Alcott, and he lived with us till kind of eighteen, and then went off to school and did his own thing. Um, he was just wow. The neighbor, I can remember the story like it was yesterday. The neighbor, the neighbors hired his mom. She came down. They were from East London, the Trans Sky, which is a very rural part of Africa, about 12 hours from Cape Town. They'd come down on a bus, him and his mom. And he, 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 uh, he moved in next door and he just hopped the fence one day and just like came over. And we had like the same actual toys. And then like we got in this fight, like whose toy was who. And he was just, and he was just calling my mom like he he just grown up. I'm talking like rural rural Africa, but he spoke mm-hmm. like impeccable English. And he would just call he would just call my mom mom and dad. His my mom he would just call my mom and dad mom and dad. And then you know we became you know fast forward a few weeks later we were like best friends. We'd hang out every day. And then his mom was moving back, and we had hired mm-hmm. his aunt to like kind of uh, to clean our house and look after our house and to look after me. And because a, a cleaner at home doesn't just like clean, they like make food they look after the kids you know so like they she her name is mavis and she's been with my family or my mom for 20 something years like she raised my sister um wow. it was his auntie so she started working with us and then he didn't want to go back with his mom to where she was going she, the mom was a bit crazy so he just lived with us from then on and <laughs> our first day of school so we went together and then you know he went off and studied and he played rugby and he he was like what the future of South Africa was right there because I mean, his his English was better than mine. He spoke all the different languages. Like, he just he just had the, he just had the world at his fingertips with it, right? And he was just so down to earth. And it so I I grew up never ever seeing like color or race or anything like that. Fortunately, because wow. of that exposure. Wow, that's amazing. I see how divided and how problematic that integration is here. And you're describing a story um, that is completely. Sounds like a fairy tale to s- if it was happening here. What do you it, was that a regular story or is it an unusual story? Um, I think I think in Cape Town and like kind of where I grew up was probably a bit more regular. Not that's not very regular at all. Um, mm. You know, but middle of South Africa, all that definitely not right. Like there was still that that racial tension has you know, been bubbling for twenty some twenty thirty years now almost. You know, um, and it's dying off slowly because unfortunately, what South Africa did is they just came in. And they just put in huge, like, not sanctions, but I mean, there's so many big sanctions put on South Africa, but they put up, they, there was huge accountability for being racist or creating a hate crime or doing anything like that, right? Like, if you said, we have a word in South Africa, um, it's, uh, and I didn't really say it, it's like their version of, it's, it's an old word um, that the Afrikaans used. It basically means person not worthy of a soul, right? It's like the worst thing you can call someone. If, wow. If you say that in South Africa, yeah, if you say that in South Africa, you can like go to jail, you lose your job, like forget it. Like the sportsman will say it, like he'll grow up with racist parents. So like, you know, it's kind of in his like, he he just didn't know any better. He'll become famous. He'll say it drunk in a bar, sports career over, like ban, banished, you know. So, and, you know, so the the N-word here, it's, it's, it's thrown around a bit more loosely. So mm-hmm. I think, so I think like white people think because like, you know, they say it to one another and it's like in rap music and there's so much where we listen mm-hmm. around and such a tough subject to talk about. But I think mm-hmm. because it's thrown around a bit more loosely, they think it's okay to use it. Like in South Africa, two black people never say that word to one another. Mm. I do want to go back to your childhood. We're, g- we're going to make oh, yeah. our way back to America right. slowly. <laughs> yeah. So how did you start surfing? So I grew up like 
right off the beach. There was literally when I grew up, my parents bought this like sand dune and they built this house. And like I remember just sand in the house the whole time because it was just it was it wasn't developed at all. There was a few hundred. It was a little town called Komaki. It was about an hour out of the city. Um, it was I think it was three or four hundred people that lived in the town when we moved there. One road that ran across it. The road, the entire town was like basically like less than a mile long and less than a mile deep, right? So it was wow. small. So it was just like, and then, you know, we used to have beachfront property until it all got developed in front of us. Uh, my, wow. my dad was always like, I should have bought closer. Um, <laughs> but um, so I grew up there and my dad surfed, but I was never really that into surfing. And then all of a sudden my friends started surfing, right? And I think he's so much mm-hmm. more, yeah, you know, dad's not cool. Your friends are cool, right? So yes. I would be hanging out <laughs> with my buddies and actually rewind. I my gran used to pick me up every day, every Tuesday from preschool or kindergarten, whatever they call it, right? And she would take us crash. We call it crash in South Africa because you just get dropped off and that's, you know, somebody looks after you guys when my parents uh, are working. And she would pick me and my cousin up and she would take us to the beach called Fisher Beach. And we'd go down with her and swim and hang out and we'd always get fish and chips on the way home. And uh, she always used to have a boogie board. And like the old boogie boards, like when I was a kid, they had this like the foam. It wasn't like this high density foam. They were like these big... Uh, they were like these big, like it was bubbled, right? So yeah, yeah, happened, yeah. Mm-hmm. often be left in the sun and the cells, right? The cells after they'd be left yeah. in the sun and then dried and like the salts and everything on it, it would erode mm-hmm. it. So it would be like yeah. the stomach rash on them would be insane. So like, I remember just like from having like raw stomach, one day eventually I just like stood up on it, right? And I was like riding in and I was, and my grand was like, no way, he's surfing. Cause I'd like, <laughs> I'd basically stand like waist deep with the board, jump on. It would be too sore on my stomach. So I'd quickly stand up, right? So I could be right it in. <laughs> so that's, and so she told my dad, and my dad was all stoked. And he's like, oh, he's surfing. But I wasn't that interested to go with him. And then my friend started, and they were all going to surf this competition. And, uh, and, and it was in South Africa, there was, when I was a kid, there was a, this amazing club culture, like club surfing culture, which was what bred like kind of generations, right? So, even if you weren't a good mm. surfer, you surfed with your local club and you had these events and it was more like a community thing. And you know, every week, like our club in Kormaki would surf against the club in Musenberg, which is the town over and all the towns, would, you know, eventually at the end of the year, there'd be this like all the clubs surfing against one another, right? The, the championships or the local state. Um, and then and were so, they like supported by the school system or supported by the no surfing was a very like it was a it was a pretty frowned upon sport when well because South Africa you must remember they were super super conservative during the apartheid era right so like mm-hmm. there was like there was no pornography there's no you know that movie Rodriguez is a true story you know mm-hmm. searching for Sugar Man because his old albums and I can remember my dad singing his songs and like in the shower and the radio and that like we all thought he was wow. Bob like as big as Bob Dylan. In South Africa, that was just what the public opinion was. But they're like, you know, this is like late eighties when his albums were coming out. They would scratch out like certain songs that talked about like on the on the record because they spoke about you know uh, anti police or whatever it was, right? Like yeah. you know, the governments and all these different issues, and they would scratch those out. That song, wow. so the album would come would be scratched out that 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 song. So, um, so surfing was like very much a rebel sport then. And because it was like, because mm. marijuana was so illegal. So like surfers and doobies and kind of that Spicoli, uh-huh. that was kind of the, that was kind of. Stereotype. and Yeah, exactly. Especially with the Afrikaans, like Dutchman. It's funny, my dad had to go to the police because um, you either went to the police, the Navy or the army because you got, there was back in apartheid era, you got drafted, right? Straight out of, straight out of school. Oh, Same. it was mandatory like, service. Yeah, mandatory service. Yeah. Right? So my dad was lucky. He got the police and mm. he moved to Durban. 
and he just basically got to surf the whole time because there wasn't much going on then, right? A couple of things here and there, but like <laughs> basically just surf for four years. So um, anyway, four then, years that's a long time. He did two, and then he opted to do another two because life was so good, right? So you're just surfing all day. There was not much going on. Like his buddies were at like the border fighting a war, you know, <laughs> and he would just be like, "Oh, this is Africa," like making sure there's no riots and shit like that. Um, very like very mellow. He had a good time, but uh, so anyway, so he I wasn't that into surfing. He was hanging at the club contest. My friends were entering it. He was like, "Why don't you just surf it?" Because your friends are on, like you can hang at the beach with them. So I was like, "Okay, cool." Because mm-hmm. if they're gonna go down, I might as well surf it. Anyway, I won it. And like, we were just like little mini kids and our dads are pushing us into waves in the water, right? And I stood mm-hmm. up and I think I just rode the furthest and that's why I won. You know, it was no like skill or anything. Right. Um, and I was like, I'm finally better than my friends at something. I want to do this. And then it kind of ticked over from there and that's kind of my introduction to surfing, purely just because that. I was better than someone else at it. I was interested in it. And then, and then competitiveness. Our, yeah, exactly. And then just our proximity to the beach and where we lived, it was just convenient, right? So we just surfed every day. But where I did grow up was freezing cold. You know, Cape Town is the waters in the 50s. Um, oh. Yeah, and freezing, like freezing, 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 because it brings up those currents. But mm-hmm. outside will be 100 degrees. So you've got this contrast. You've got 50 water and 100 outside. So I used to get like crazy migraines from the contrast. I, when I was a kid, I thought I had like oh. brain tumor or something, right? But it was just like, no, it's just because the contrast of the water. Uh, crazy the one great thing about surfing is kind of the camaraderie from the older guys that not the younger kids right so there's always be someone looking out my dad always knew if i was at the beach there's somebody looking out for me or the kids or watching us and they'd be tormenting us too there's this thing called they call a young surfer a grom g-r-o-m and it comes from grommets that go in your ear right when you when you're a kid they put those things in your ears to release the pressure yeah it's called a grommet oh. right it goes in your ear uh-huh. um when you have bad ear infection that when you're a kid so because it's small, so you're a little grommet. Uh, so they're called oh. young mini surfers groms. Uh, so they've got this thing called grom abuse, which is just like, it's almost like a rite of passage, right? Initiation. So like mm. you just get tormented when you're a kid by the older guys. And they're like, when you get older, then you torment the next generation. Like on any <laughs> given day, I'd just be like, my wetsuit would be stripped and I'd be naked on the beach or like thrown in the cold water or <laughs> something terrible strapped, strapped to a pole naked. Like there's always... It'd be, be days that like I need a day off because I can't get tormented anymore, or like or like beaten or thrown in a trash can. It's just what it is, and it is just. And then eventually That's one intense. day, like, eventually one day, you just learn to like stop fighting it, and then it's no fun for them anymore. So they're like, okay, you're part of our crew now. And is it like that these days still? No, you can't do anything anymore. Are you kidding? <laughs> First sign of that, you'd go to jail, or some, some parent would be reporting you, or. Yeah, I I would imagine that. I mean it's funny you're telling about this as like a sweet memory of childhood but it to me as i mean it sounds awful it sounds oh, terrible it's just like when it's just when it's just part and it's like there was this endearing thing about it though right it was like those guys would look after us no matter what you know they would like if they were they would, though. yeah they would like if it was big they would take us out these are the same guys that are like taking me surfing at like the wave around the corner because they're older and they have a car you know, so there's like, there's this like, there's this give and take, right? It's not just like, oh, okay. it's not like bullies just waiting down there to be the shit out of us. It would be like okay. me getting clever, you know, in the water, like trying to take a wave off one of them and then being like, oh, you, you're getting it now. You know, oh, <laughs> when, okay. you, when okay. we get you later, okay. it was all done with a smile on the face, right? There was never any aggression. That's nice. Okay. So that's like kind of like a village, big village feel, it was. like a small village feel. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like I, I'd be like 10, 11, 12 years old walking around till like 1 a.m. Like in the neighborhood, oh, wow. my parents aren't even worried because like just it was so safe. It's insane, right? It's crazy. 
<laughs> it's a whole different world. So, so you started very young, and then how did you get to the professional level? I was lucky at the time when I grew up and I started surfing and competing. There was this great like uh, interest in surf in surfwear. So the brands like Quicksilver and Billabong were getting really popular just amongst like the general public, the non-endemic people that didn't surf. Right. And yeah. and because of that, surf was kind of booming, and surfwear was really cool. Right, those early nineties, two thousand. So. What it did was because these brands were having so much success, it created a good infrastructure for like the junior level. So all of a sudden there was money being put into surfing events, you know, young mm -hmm. talent. Like, you know, I was getting companies would be like, hey, we can help you with some travel. You know, my parents and I never grew up with money, but they were able to be like, hey, we can help you like pay for Damien's trip to go compete in this event. And there was his oh, like, wow. or there was a team manager, like I got sponsored by Billabong. I was really lucky and they took us like around like, Oh yeah, there's this event. So when you get here, there's a free place to stay and, you know, just get here. Like I would, I would catch the bus from, and I was just thinking about this last night, actually I'd catch the bus from Cape Town to Durban because my parents couldn't afford to make for me to fly. And it was like mm. 24 hours, the, the bus ride. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it was like 3000 stops. I'd leave on like a Tuesday morning and get there on like a Wednesday, kind of like midday. When they're not, you know, and it's someone would have to pick me up. There's no cell phone. Someone would pick me up, you know, one of my dad's friends, and then take me to wherever I needed to go, or they would look after me and drop me at the beach. And you know, I'd have my like, I remember I'd have my like little coins for each day that I could spend of my money in like little Ziploc style bags. We call them bank. We call them bankies, the bank bags that money would used to come in. They're little like a bit more <laughs> square, and that was like my money for each day. And I was just taught to do that from. 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, and then when I was 13, I was fortunate. There was a surf shop called Lifestyle and they took a big interest in the, all the local kids. And we had this little like mm. lifestyle surf team it was called Lifestyle Youth Brigade. And, and they would take us surfing like every Wednesday and coach us and then, you know, give us lunch. And then and they had this competition for all the kids. Whoever did the best in the whole series of events that year, like if you won, you got five points. If you got, you know, whatever, you know, scaled down. Mm. And I won at the end of the year and the, the prize was a ticket overseas. And the, guy, the owner of the surf shop, Titch Paul, he was like a Cape Town surf legend. His son, his name is Craig. He was going to Bali for his Indonesia for his 21st birthday with a bunch of friends. They were all doing this, this trip. And my dad like couldn't afford to take to go overseas with me. So he was just like, can Damien go with you guys? And they were like, uh, yeah, I guess like, sure. We're going for a month. And he's, <laughs> he's 13 years old. Like now when I see a 13 year old, I see a 13 year old, like I'm like, holy shit, like that is a baby. Um, yes. <laughs> and these guys were like, yeah, they're like, yeah, you can come as long as you can like handle. And they knew I could handle myself and I could surf like proper waves. And uh, we, we knew each other while we grew up in the same town. So they were like, cool, we're going to be like partying in that, but we'll, we'll keep an eye on him. Somebody was like, okay. I remember my mom crying at the airport like when I was leaving. Uh, it's probably why they got divorced. Yeah. I think they got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I remember her being like, why? Like, why are you doing this to him? <laughs> like, and I, obviously, I, all I wanted to do was go, right? Um, of course. And, I can only imagine. And I went for like a month to Indonesia when I was 13 years old. And they they looked after me and like we, we surfed crazy waves. And I remember my parents like, you know, they sent me with $500 and traveler's checks back in the day. $500 was like a lot of money in South Africa. Um, wow. But we did like so much on that trip. And, you know, I surfed with my heroes and I saw like, you know, it was my first glimpse of like what professional surfing was and what it could be and seeing it Amazing. and like... Yeah, I went to like nightclubs when I was 13 years old. <laughs> like it's Indonesia, right? It's like celebrity to do whatever, right? So you saw what life can be. I wasn't drinking, but I was like hanging out to go to karaoke bars and um and anyway we'd go surf trips and then and I did that for a month and came home and I was like I think and I think that was probably the 
the green light that went off in my head that was like, this is what I want to do, you know, now I need to go mm-hmm. and just like pursue this and kind of do whatever I can because I got the bug. Um, and mm-hmm. then I think every year after that, I kind of went to Indonesia, Australia and started traveling. And, and there was, again, like this influx of money in surfing. So I was able to get good sponsorship and get budgets. And it was kind of the best introduction I could have, I could have had to like running a business or anything because I had to like, you know, have a budget per year that I'd have to oversee and I could see what I could, you know, if I win this event, I can go to this event or I can go to Bali for an extra two weeks. And so I was taught very young to be able to like, uh, you know, manage my money and manage my career. And, you know, my pet, well, obviously my dad was there and they were helping out too, wherever they could. Yeah. But uh, I, w- I was really lucky to have that kind of exposure at such a young age and then being able to That's manage myself. Amazing. Yeah. And then like I would go to Hawaii from 14 years old onwards for like two months every year and then to Australia for a month straight from there because it was cheaper to get around the world ticket. So I just go there and then all these events and I'd stay with people and friends. And I did that probably from like 14 till, till I probably moved to the US, like 20, or till like 20, 21. I always tell wow. people I, I live my life in like reverse, right? Like I've already lived my like retirement. Uh, I got to do all this stuff <laughs> like when I retire one day, I don't want to like even leave the house. I'm so like, I see old people traveling now. I'm like, oh, they want to do that. <laughs> I just want to stay home. <laughs> That's like funny. Money. Yeah. Uh, so we've got that like exposure for so long and I got to travel and, you know, by the time I was 16, 17, 18, I was making good money and, you know, I had, I was, I was afforded the opportunity to be able to like live by myself and travel and do what I wanted when I wanted and compete at a high level. And you know, I was very serious. I took it very serious. I did, my results didn't always reflect my dedication. Um, I think, I think it was a lot mental more than actual ability, but I, on the other side, I was really lucky because at that time, up until then, you could only be a professional surfer if you competed. But around that kind of 17 to 18, 19 mark, it became free surfing became a thing where guys started getting paid just to travel and get photos and, and do all that stuff, right? And just kind of more content, right? The early days of content. Okay, so now that's where your content skills come out of. Well, can you, can you just, for me, as somebody who doesn't know anything about the world of professional surfing, like what is the structure of it? Like what's the career in surfing? You got two, right? So you've got like, so you've got this, the, the, just the straight winning, which I think everyone can relate to the professional surfing at the highest level mm-hmm. of competition. So you've got the Kelly Slater, which is, you know, the most dominant surfer and one of the most dominant athletes of all time. And then you've got, and then you've got the other side, which is magazines and content, right? So to get on the cover of a magazine created a lot of awareness and visibility for a sponsor, right? So if I had a billabong sticker and I was on the cover of the magazine that's on shelves and 30,000 mm-hmm. copies, that's exposure. So there became mm-hmm. big incentives for being on the cover of magazines. So now they weren't going to put you on the cover of a magazine if you were in a contest or contest jersey, right, with a singlet on. It was normally going to uh-huh. be like discovering some beautiful wave or some new trip or a reason to write about a story, right, or to write about mm-hmm. a place. So I was, I had some, I had a good friend, Duncan Scott. He was a lot older than me and he kind of took me under his wing. He was an amazing writer and he taught me early on and to like kind of, he would, he would always fund his trips to these remote locations because he would get everyone together, the photographer, the surfers, then he would go on the trip. He would kind of do all the discovery or the, all the, all, all the mapping out beforehand and finding the waves, mm-hmm. track in the swells, take everybody there. Then he would write the story for the magazine. So he would cover his own trip, get photos in the magazine, you know, and create awareness by being able to write the story. So I learned that from him pretty young and he kind of taught me and I was, I was a terrible writer, but my mom was a good, she was, she was a good fixer, spell checker. She's a good editor. Yeah, great editor, that's it. Um, so I'd write stories. So I started writing pretty young um, for magazines. And if I was at a contest, I'd just be like, do you want to write the contest wrap-up? Because there'd always be a little wrap-up at the back for, for a big event. So I'd write that wrap-up. And um, I was in Hawaii when I was like 17 or 18. And 
it was like the early days of like websites and this magazine at home, it's called Zigzag Magazine. They're the biggest and the oldest and they, they're still around. And they, they asked me to like, if there was any like gossip going on on the North Shore. So I wrote this little article. Um, the surfer had like this really famous surfer had gone to Foodland, this shopping mall. His name was Bruce Irons. And he was like, I think he was out of it. I think he was pretty drunk. And he got in a big fight with the, with the staff. And like, I think he threw a toothbrush at them and they, ban- and they banned him, right? So they banned him from the mall for like, which mm. is literally the only place to eat or buy food. So like to not be able to go, there's like a big deal. But so he was bad. And <laughs> okay. So I wrote this like little, I penned this little like five hundred word story and, and they, and they put it up on the site and they called it, my nickname was Duma, D-O-O-M-A. Uh-huh. And Duma, Damien Hardman is, was a world champion, I think in 80, he's either 85 or 86 world champion. I think 85 world champion. So I was born 86. So, so he, my dad, he always said he named me after him. His name was Damien Duma Hodman. That was his nickname. So because my name was Damien, I just, you know, I just, got, just tacked on that Duma. So people just uh-huh. started calling me that without, you know, whether I liked it or not. So they called the article Duma's Rumors, right? And then mm-hmm. and I wrote another one and they were like, holy crap. It was like the early days of like being able to tell how much traffic came to the website, right? And they were like, mm-hmm. whoa, like so many, the story got spread around so many different places because it was funny and it was kind of ready. And I remember being like- Early viral. Yeah. And I remember him being like, shit. I hope he doesn't read this because he'll be pissed off with me. <laughs> like I was like, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and did he? No, no, he didn't read it. But so, I, so I was like, oh, there's something there. So I started this website called Doomers Rumors, which is basically like surf satire meets like gossip, right? And and it was just the early days. I think there was like two other surfers with a blog. You know, I was looking for it. Is it still up anywhere? No, I took it down. I kind of, I would kind of wish I had. People still message me about it. That's what my Instagram handle is. That yeah. But, but it, like it took off like crazy, and I had a friend that was really good at Photoshop. Um, so he would Photoshop all the images, and then I'd write the stories. And there's always like you know, 70, 80 percent truth in there, and then like you know twenty, thirty percent like you, know, you interpret it how you want it, right? And and it had some like big wins early on, and I was like so plugged into like what was going on in the industry, and people mm. just love gossip, right? People just love it, and yep. it was ne- it was never like celebrity gossip where you talk about this person cheating or anything. Like, it was like this guy might be sponsored by this company now. You know, he might be leaving mm-hmm. Quicksilver for Billabong or um, mm. or this guy is on steroids, like not really, but like he's just looking big. So it's like industry stuff. It's a, all the super insider stuff, right? Kind of shop talk. Exactly that, right? And that's all it was. And But it took off and like people loved it and they got it and I would get like, uh-huh. people emailing me like I'm gonna fucking kill you like take the shit down <laughs> and like so like it's not that. and that's one of the reasons I was just like I didn't want like, surfers are so sensitive because it's such a like a small industry mm-hmm. it really knows everybody so it's not like the celebrity world or you know MLB or anything like that where basically say whatever you want about someone because if you, you there'll be 10 other blogs doing the same thing so it makes it okay right yeah sanitizable but I would get like people furious um and so I was just like, so I was doing that and it was doing really well. And what it did was it allowed me to like, allowed brands to have an interest in me beyond competing, right? So when my competing wasn't, you know, when I wasn't performing as well as I should have been, you know, there was, I was still getting all this awareness on the other side and trips and photos. And mm. so it created this little career for me and it was, and it was writing and it was what I love doing. Um, and so I just knocked the mic and then it just took off from there and it did really well. And it, that created, so I was surfing full time. I had moved to the US now around 20, this is 2009. So let's hold for there for a second. Like move to America is a big decision, like move overall. I mean, I I understand that you were on the move a lot of time and like you were not at home uh, and you were traveling, but what was the idea of going to the States? Did you ever dream about it? 
Yeah, so no, not so much. I actually always thought I would end up in Australia because I spent most of my time there. Mm. But what happened, Bulawang were like, being in South Africa is so, it's so hard to base yourself in South Africa and be an athlete and travel because mm. just it's proximity to the rest of the world. So I was based there. So they had said to me, hey, come, Bulawang had said to me, come to the US, base yourself out of the US, we'll help you in the US, mm. uh, like financially. And then you can do so much more. All the magazines are here all the TV coverage, everything we need, we can use you for like our campaigns and catalogs. Like there was just so much more opportunity for me mm. like to kind of branch out if I came to the US. Right. Uh, so, it was, so it was an easy decision. So I was like, I'll just come over there. I had some friends there, like you can stay on our couch until you get set up. Jordi was now like spending a lot more time here. And I, and I, I probably in the beginning, I didn't look at it as like this grand move. You know, I just took the bag that I would normally have, some surfboards and I just went, you know, and that's what I needed. And I think I had a few hundred bucks and I was like, mm. I'll figure it out when I get there. And I knew I'd be coming home in July for the events to compete and, you know, mm-hmm. back and forth. So it didn't feel as like permanent then. Right. Um, so that's kind of why. And then, so that's, how I was like, oh, cool. I'll just go over and figure it out from there. And I didn't have, I was just on a tourist visa. Uh-huh. So I was like, you know, South Africa is, I think probably like Russia, you got to get the B1, B2, go for the interviews. So I was fortunate I had a 10 year one and allowed you to stay like for six months a year, you know, after six months, but I'd be leaving back. I, I can't believe they never pulled me up or caught me. <laughs> not that I was doing anything wrong, but like never like were like pull me aside and be like, yo, you're coming back and forth. Like every other, I'd be in Mexico, Costa Rica, like back and forth. Oh, they could figure out you're an athlete. So they're like, oh, okay, he's traveling for work. Yeah, that's it. So I was fortunate there. And then you always got these big board bags. So they're yeah. kind of like, okay, he must be doing something. Um, <laughs> and then that's kind of that. So that's what was my moving to the US. Wow. And so when did it become, was there a moment where you realized that, whoopsie daisy, I'm an immigrant? Um. Not really. I I felt like when I'd moved to the US in 2009 and people were so, you know, it's funny. I remember getting here and people being like, you know, it's in the big recession, right? This after the 2008 financial yeah. crisis. And I'd moved to Newport Beach. These girls that I lived with, they worked at Billabong. They let me like live in their garage. And mm-hmm. I remember and it was in Corona del Mar, which is like between Laguna Beach and Newport Beach, which is an extremely affluent place. Like Tiger Woods' mom has a house there. Mm-hmm. So I remember like walking around and being like, I don't see a financial like crisis here. Like this is just, <laughs> this is, no one looks like they don't have money. Like this, what's going on here? You know, meanwhile, it's like, which I think we, we see now again, yeah. right? Like middle America and the people are actually suffering. I think we'll, I think we'll feel a lot, people in Los Angeles and average person will feel a lot more this time around than oh, probably yeah. back then. Um, never mind the housing crisis. I had friends that lost homes, but um, anyway, I just didn't see it. I was like, this is amazing. Like, and it didn't quite hit the surf industry yet. It hit only hit the surf industry a few years later because the, the economy was still kind of, yeah, that's it. And there was still a fair bit of cash going through and they had they were coming off so much success that they were able to coast for a while, right? They'd had like they tightened their budgets and there were stores, a few stores and that were closed because retail was down, whatever, but there was still so much cash going through the register. So I moved over with Billabong and I was sponsored by Billabong at the time and then I remember that like it was like a few months later, there was like time for them to actually like step up to the party and help me out financially and they didn't and they were like and they were starting to feel the financial crisis then and they're like mm-hmm. made all these excuses i'm like well guys you told me to move over here like i left my life at home mm-hmm. broke off my girlfriend like came to live here and, like living in this garage like trying to make it happen now what and they just gave me like i remember at the time being so angry because it was a south Af- it was a south african guy in charge and he was the one like that phoned me and was like giving me like the hard yards and but like at the same time i knew that he just bought like this like 10 million dollar house <laughs> or like six million dollar house i was like yeah. um 
and at the time, like, you know, now I'm old, I completely realized, like, why, like, I would have done the same thing. I was just some spoiled brat kid that wanted to surf, you know, <laughs> it wasn't, like, it wasn't exactly like selling t-shirts on the side of the road, like putting money back in their pockets. I was just one of their many surfers, you know, and they had guys like Antlions and Legends and that stuff. Right. really need some. But anyway, I was fortunate. I met this guy, Michael Thompson, and he's the guy who is a South African who started Gotcha back in the day, which was one of the biggest surf brands ever. Mm. And he's kind of, he's a legend. He's like a surf legend from South African, surf legend overall, but he had started this business and then he became a consultant and he was a really powerful guy in the surf industry. And he was helping out Geordie at the time. And I met him through Geordie and he just kind of took me under his wing because I was South African and mm -hmm. he just died. He just died two weeks ago um, of cancer. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, thanks. And yeah, he's, he's a legend. He, anyway, he took me under his wing and he was so pissed off at Billabong because he knew those guys really well for not mm -hmm. like coming to the party and helping me. Like they said they would, he just took it like on himself to find me a new sponsor. Wow. So he got me sponsored by this company, Rusty. And that was in 2010. Mm -hmm. And, and Rusty, you know, they had a team right that had left and they needed to plug a hole. And I was just there and I, you know, I, I made the effort to like make sure that I was at every industry party or surfing where there was always a camera, like making sure I was working hard to like make sure that I was visible. Right. And that people oh. would see me because, I figured out in the US, it's all about like, I figured out pretty young that it's, well, pretty early that it's all about like being seen and like making sure that people are comfortable with you. And this yeah. is something we can talk about too, you know, I think for that, and I think it's actually a huge part of it because I've experienced it a little bit later on in my business. Um, but just making myself like around and aware and like accessible. And because of that, I got sponsored by Rust. And then it really felt like I was going to like a lot more permanent when I got sponsored by a US company mm -hmm. and they got me a, they got me an O one uh, P one visa, which was a professional athlete's visa mm -hmm. to live, right? And that's when it felt permanent. So that was kind of like end of two thousand ten, maybe two thousand eleven. And still, and you continue. You were continuing blogging at this time, or yeah. So I had my, and that's why. So I had this doing as rumors. It was doing well. Um, everybody liked it. It was just industry gossip, like mm -hmm. it was causing, causing, you know. And it's so, and so typical of surf. I always call it storm in a teacup. But it's <laughs> like it's. It's like I would do something and like people would like freak out and it was like really just a bunch of nothing, you know. Like <laughs> you know, I'd once I'd once said that Hurley were going to sell to Nike, which they did. Like a few years later, and the, and the founder, <laughs> they got an idea from that. Yeah, and the founder, like, which I would I just I had heard because I had friends that worked there and they had like caught wind of it, right? So it was in the deal, and the founder like freaked out on me and like people in the company were freaking out, thinking they're going to lose their jobs, and like everyone was like this whole like there was this huge ripple effect. And I didn't really understand at the time because I didn't understand what it was. What merger and acquisitions are? Yeah, exactly. And, what, <laughs> and most of the time, they just come and wipe everyone. This one was the opposite. They just basically gave them just a lot more money to go and mm. to, to blow. They just blew millions and millions. But um, so everyone freaked out on that. And like this, he phone, he didn't phone me. I saw him. I bumped into him, and he like kind of went a bit nuclear on me and got all pissed off. And like we had this kind of exchange, and mm. uh, and I was like, holy shit, like. That little like blog post had that effect. Like, and I remember saying to him, like, your company must be pretty unstable if that little blog post had this effect on you guys. Ouch. <laughs> like, which I don't think, yeah, I don't think helped. But uh, him and I are good friends now. He's an awesome guy. Um, but now I understand because I've seen what it's like for people to get laid off and lose their jobs and you know, yeah. the kind of unrest it can cause. Um, so I had that. So that was doing well. And I was surfing and I was having like, I was free surfing a lot and I was getting a lot of exposure. But I just knew like, you know, you could just see the like the contracts were getting smaller and smaller, and what was going on in surfing was the top guys were making a lot more because this is the introduction of like Nike and outside surf companies getting interested. So they had such bigger budgets. So what would happen is, Jordy, mm. so my best friend Jordy, who I manage now and who I moved over with, he was one of the beneficiaries of this. So like, he went from making fifty thousand dollars a year 
to $1.5 million a year. Wow. So like just from one sponsor, right? So what happened, he was like, he was set to make a bit more, but what would have probably been around like the 250 mark, all of a sudden Nike came and they were like, how much do you want? Good question. Yeah, he didn't know. So he's, he actually got in a big lawsuit because they were like, how much do you want? And not with Nike, with another brand. He said like this figure because he didn't know. Yeah. And then, and then a week later, Nike were like, oh, we'll give you like almost 10 times that amount, you know, like five times that amount. He was like, what? And he just had no idea. He's just a young kid from South Africa that came from nothing. Um, wow. So, so what happened that caused though, for the surf brands to be able to hold on to the top guys like him, they had to gut the middle class. So they just wiped away like the surfers like me. So I saw that happening and I was lucky I had this rusty deal and things were going really well and they were really good to me. And I saw that happening. So I was like, I've got to start learning. Like I've got to find something else to do, learn a skill or, you know, what does that next kind of chapter look like, whether it's next year or in five years, I need to kind of start working towards something. And because of Duma's rumors, Quicksilver came up to me. I met these guys in New York at the surf event. They had this big surf event in New York. I met these guys and they were like, oh, we love the blog and this and that. Like we love that you just make content and you do your thing on the side. And it was one of the early you know, people doing that. They were, they were just thought I could see a story with like, I don't know much, right? Create a kind of story. They were like, we want to build out this department. Up until that stage, like the surf ranchers did like big films. It'd be like the yearly film they did, you know, and that would be it. They were like, hey, how can we take that film and like cut it up into... 10 different episodes, you know, afterwards for YouTube, whatever it was, right? So that was my job. So they approached me and they were like, hey, there's this, you can work for us. You can kind of transition out of your surfing, kind of start learning. And I was fortunate I jumped at that and took that opportunity. But at the same time, Rusty were offering me like the best surf deal that I'd ever had. And I was going to get to have a clothing collection with them and do all this cool stuff. But I was just like, I had this kind of weird gut feeling that it was going the other way. and Like things were about to get worse before they got better. So I took the Quicksilver job um, wow. and there was a bit of stability. Yeah. So I turned that deal down and there was this kind of one deciding factor too there. There was another guy that was on the team and I said I wanted more because Quicksilver offered me more money and they were like, okay, cool. We'll just, we'll give you more, but we're just going to take that money from him and give it to you. And I was like, why do two people have to suffer when I got this opportunity over here? Like, I don't want this guy to lose his job or his surf career with the fact he had a family in that because I've got this. And it wasn't like, I'm not, wasn't like completely, listen, I don't, I don't want to be like, oh, I did it because of that. And like, I'm just like, right. that guy. It, wasn't, it wasn't because of that, but it was a bit of a deciding factor in my decision to get Quicksilver. And I think it was like March, April, must be 2012, maybe. And I think my first week, they laid off 250 people. I got there and it was like the mess, like it was the financial crisis that caught up to surfing, right? This is when it caught up and they were like, oh, should it hit the fan? Earnings mm-hmm. are coming back. And, you know, I think which is what's going to happen. And the guys told me, they were like, hey, don't come in. Like, you're part of this, like, the next part of the business, but we have to, like, wow. gut this place and clean it up. But I remember coming in and seeing, like, people that had worked there 20 years being laid off, you know, and that, and that's when the kind of the, the like, the reaction about my blog post kind of caught up with me and made me go, okay, now I understand, like, what kind mm. of people crying for losing their jobs, like, what are they going to do? And, like, you know, yeah. that's all they know, this company. And that. So I was like, shit. And, but at the same time, it made me think, I never want to be, I never want to be in a position where I can lose my job when I'm that disposable. Yeah. Right. And like where my destiny is just up to like, I'm literally just a rounding error or like where someone's just looking at like a chart on a bunch of names and going like, okay, he makes this much, this much, this much. Okay. We'll just whack these 10 people because we need to make up some money. And I was like, how do I make sure I'm never that? So I use, I use that opportunity to like really benefit myself selfishly, like to like, how do I get as much as I can out of this? And then move on, right? So, like, how do I learn 
a new skill or actually like what marketing is and like how it works. Yeah. So I just listened and did a lot of listening and if I had some really cool bosses that just included me in everything. And like mm. I got to sit in meetings with like PacSun and like hear about what their plans were for the, their partnerships and like all these different things. So that was going good. But, but what had happened was the reason I got hired got shut down because I had this budget that I was going to go create content and hire some young filmmakers and do all the stuff and everything got put on a freeze. So it's just kind of like trading water and like, all of a sudden, I went from this company. There was this like cool buzz in the office where mm. everyone's excited and like stoked to come to work every day. To just like, there's no one. I can't see anyone around me. There's no one here, <laughs> and like, it's a depressed feeling. It's just empty seats, and like, no one knows. Everyone's just trying to like catch the balls that are falling. Um, so I was in Australia for this event for a Quicksilver event, and I met these guys from this magazine called Stab. And I was there, and they, and I'd met this guy. We'd just we'd be eating breakfast at the same place every day. His name was Tom Bird. And I knew his partner, the guy who owned the magazine, we'd met a few times through the years. And I'd been featured in the magazine and they were a big surf magazine. Mm-hmm. And Tom was asking me, he's a super inquisitive guy, hyper intelligent, not from the surf world, from like actual big advertising world. And he asked me, um, he was asking me like what I was doing and what if I was enjoying it. And like, you know, initially I was like, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And then like, as we got speaking over the days, like it kind of like I opened up a bit to him. I was like, yeah, I hate this. This thing sucks. Like what I want to do and what my plans are, like are being hindered by this company, just being in like, you know, dead deadlock and there's there's no light in the tunnel and I understand that I'm just a number and like if I left tomorrow it wouldn't make a difference for the company and that's what I didn't like, right? Mm-hmm. So there'd be no impact on the company, which I was like, it's kind of paying me a salary to do like not really doing anything or earning my money like I want to be. Uh, I want to be creating change and like, you know, creating activations or things that can be like we could be tangible outcomes. Like, well we did this and we saw this result, right? Like we did mm-hmm. this video or we grew our following to this, whatever it was. Um so he he offered me a job and their magazine, they, what they had seen is they were the first surf mag to go online and they saw that they had a, they had a, a, a hard copy printed issue and then they had the online and they invested early on on the website. I think their website back then cost them $100,000 because that's how much websites were. Back in the yeah. day. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It was like the, it was like the first flat screen TVs. They were like $10,000. You know, now they're 300 bucks at Costco for a 72 inch. It's yeah. like that's how much this website was. But my doomers rumors, it was two, my first website for the blog. I paid a friend two grand and I paid him off over a year. I paid him like 200, I was 2,400. I paid him 200 bucks a month for wow. a year by Jason Miller. Um, and that's how, but that, obviously theirs was a huge content platform. And yeah, so they were seeing their traffic get bigger in the US than it was in Australia because this like surfing was so much, this so much just a pure mass and numbers here, right? Mm-hmm. And then the opportunity yeah. to like bring in advertising. So I always call it like a paid internship, right? Like a high paid internship. They offered me a job there to go and launch the magazine in the, in the USA. And and this will bring me back to my point about like being vis- visibility with Americans. Mm-hmm. And they came over and basically like taught me how the business runs and how to run it. And like, you know, this is how we write proposals and this is how we go after advertising. And we were like a little one, you know, like a small team. I think I had one, mm-hmm. I had an assistant, a girl, Holly, that worked for me and a writer and a young writer, right? And we just did everything and we just hired freelance people and just made things work and we were a small team and we had a little office on Abikini that this guy, this cool Australian dude, Ben was just like, you can have it for free. Like you can have a desk here for free. Uh, and then, uh, and that's how, and that's how we got going. And they came over and put so much time into me and teaching me how the business works and how to sell. And so there's all these advertising dollars that were available for us to go and take, but we would go to these meetings, we'd pitch them, we'd tell them like, you know, they'd be like, dude, we're so stoked to see you guys. Like you guys are killing it. Like, well, we love, we, we love staff. This, this would be like, okay, what, you know, where is it? What does your business need? What can we help? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, cool. Do you guys like this idea? Yes, we love it. All right, awesome. We would write the pitch or write it out for them, send it over, nothing. And then like that kept happening, nothing. 
nothing. Like going to these meetings, I'd be like, why do they, why does no one tell us if they don't, if they don't like the idea, tell us. Right. That's what I learned. And it's very generalizing here, but Americans are so afraid of closing a door by saying no, that they don't want to like, they're afraid that like they would offend us if they didn't like the idea or close the door on the opportunity that it would never be another opportunity again. So no one would ever tell us no or give us a straight answer. They just go like quiet on us. Mm. And it literally took like us knocking on the door. I'd have like four meetings with someone then like eventually get through and get a little deal. And then once we got our foot in the door and performed once, it kind of opened up to us, you know, they'd be like, okay, here's our budget. Now that we can, now we can talk. And I think, and I think that's what we're going to see now again, you know, with like COVID and all that. And I think that's very much going back to like the visibility, but it's very much about corporate culture in America, right? And just kind of work culture in America is no one wants to take big risks. And we're pitching these big ideas that wanted to create like change. And like, we're trying to create early days of like real partnered content. Like this is, mm-hmm. yes, this is paid for by Billabong or whatever, but this is amazing quality content and we can't afford to do it by ourselves. That's why we partnered with Billabong. And that was kind of always the thing. It was never this just like, here's a rate card, choose your, you know, double page, couple banner ads and you know, an Instagram post, right? Yeah. We were just like, here's this whole thing. And it was no, 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 no for years and then, or for a year or so. And then eventually like, okay, yes. And then once that kind of, once we got our foot in the door and showed what we could do, it kind of, the whole company opened with us. And that's what I've learned about America is it's all relationship based. You know, it's, it's yeah. once you get in and you even it's almost even worth like getting in for like, you never want to sell yourself short, but doing something for less or don't turn an opportunity away because the financials don't make sense because of what it could be. Like I've had, I've seen friends and I've, I've made this mistake because I've been on the other side of this where I've said no to something um doing something working with a company just like freelance because the money wasn't there and then like now that company's exploding my friends that took it are like making really really good money right and they have like an amazing life with this company and it's very like it's on their own terms and so that's so that's one of the things i've seen you know that's that's america's a real relationship base and one thing i did notice when i first moved here if somebody phones in south africa and i don't know how this is in russia but because Mm -hmm. the pie is so small you know for that middle class and that if somebody you'll meet somebody out and You'll be talking, you might have like a common bond or they might be able to help you. They'll tell you, hey, give me a call. I'll help you out. Like, let's, let's talk. Call them like, uh, sorry, who is this? <laughs> like, and I don't remember, you know, like that. That's how it is. Whereas Americans would be, hey. Russians won't say that. They just won't even answer. They won't say, call me. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, okay. So, but in America, people would be like, call me. And if you don't, they'd be offended. Yeah, I'd be like, meet people. And they'd be like, yeah, call me. I can help you out. Or I can like get you some work here on that. And I wouldn't. And they'd be like, yo, why don't you call me? And I'd be like, because I thought you were just like saying it to be nice. you like, and they'd be like, no, like what? I, I told my friends you were going to call and you didn't. No, I looked at you and I'd be like, sorry, I didn't actually think you were serious. And they couldn't understand why. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. And that's one yeah. of the great things about, you know, I think about American people is how hospitable people were when I first met them and like welcoming us into their homes and like, you know, going out of their way to try help us. Hmm. I don't know if that's always the case, but that's been my kind of experience and, well, I think you come in a, in a, you came, your path here is unique and, you know, everybody's path is unique, but you really represent, you know, you're, you're a professional athlete and you came here as such, as a, as a creative, as an athlete. And that's, you know, 1% of 1%. But it's interesting that you, in, on one hand, you came in a, you came here in such a privileged way, but at the same time, you did experience all the hardship of not having much and having to figure out 
I used to catch the bus. I used to didn't have a car for two years. I'd catch the bus. Two years in LA without a car. Oh my God, how did you survive? I was in Newport Beach. So I'd catch the bus to like St. Domini and I'd have to leave a board at somebody's house because you're not allowed to surfboard on the bus. So I have to leave a surfboard at the house so I could like go surf That's there. discrimination. Or you had a, or a range. You put a bicycle. I just try to put on the bicycle slot to the front. <laughs> There's always opportunity here. Like, And I think someone really from Russia, from these kind of different countries, you see that. You see that opportunity everywhere you look. Um, my biggest issue is being living here is, and granted again, like being how privileged I am moving here, being a professional sportsman, the people that I know, the connections and that. But my one of my biggest mistakes is taking on too many opportunities, not being able to say no, because I'm just like, I'm, mm. I'm so scared of like losing, right? I'm just like, I need to just do whatever I can. It's just like running joke with me. It's like, I have like five jobs at once. My biggest fault as an American, I, I talk about this with my Israeli buddy too, is we don't like see, because Africa is so like, it's so small and there's so few people and it's the opportunity is so limited. I have a very limited like idea of growth in my head. Like I don't see, I don't think big enough often because I'm like, I think I'm just too careful, right? I don't, Risk averse, maybe risk averse, but not going okay. This I wouldn't call you risk averse. <laughs> no, no, probably not at all. But like in my own head, very careful and like very in doubt. You know, Kanye actually, he had a, he's he's like this crazy person that kind of goes up and down. But he did a Joe Rogan uh, a couple of days ago, and it's really good. And he talks about like fear and doubt being the number one kind of dream killer of people, right? And I think that's it's not new information; it's pretty out there. But he talks about his own and how it related to himself and thinking big and how to scale this. And then also being at the same time, like, you know, where does that, where does it meet with like logic and then that kind of thing, right? Like, how is it going to scale? How is it going to be? What is your end idea? Why? And then, but what he really talks about and what I liked is, and I've talked about this a lot too with friends is why are you starting this thing? Is it because you're passionate about it or is it to get rich? Because to get rich quickly thing very, very rarely works out. It's like, if you're just doing something that you're truly passionate about and then the pendulum swings your way, that's how you normally kind of see the success. Well, you seem to be very intentional about most things. Yeah, I think that's what immigrants do, though. You come here, you move, you move here for a purpose. Like, you know, I came here, I left my family, I moved over here, like started life for myself for a reason. I wanted a better life. Like, I'm not here just to like enjoy the spoils and like to. And there's a lot. I have an amazing amount of fun and I'm good friends and that. But you you move in here, you've already got your back against the wall because you don't have that. Like, you go to school in the US or if you grow up here, you have this like community of people and not just people like of friends and family but like of like assets that you can lean on to like like my friends mm-hmm. i look at my friends when they do business they need like you know somebody to build out a, like a forensic accountant or something like that they're like oh i went to school this one guy i know him like straight away it's done you, know, you don't have mm-hmm. that you like you don't have that like kind of college like bromance yeah. that that yeah that isn't so important when starting a business and a career right is having connections because it's the sole places you know the biggest thing yeah current you know one of the biggest currencies here is relationships so you started yes. that. So it's being intentional with like those people you want to surround yourself by. What are you trying to do? Like, what is your end goal? And like, what do you, what do you want? Like, I wanted to come here and buy a home. And, you know, I was fortunate. I, one of the, I was very fortunate. I met my wife. We've been together 10 years, like uh, seven months into living here. And we've been together ever wow. since. And she's got an amazing family that like took me in and they made it like a lot easier for me to live here because I felt a lot more at home and comfortable. So I was lucky. I was really lucky I had that. But finding that little community, right, of people. And not needing to have, you know, a lot of superficial people, especially in Los Angeles. They're not interested. Like, it's the first question is like, hey, not where you're from, like, or where do you live? And it's like, hey, what do you do? Oh, okay. I can't. Are you in the industry or not? Yeah. Okay. You're of no use to me. I'll like talk to that person over there, right? And just like the networking thing, right? It's very real. Yeah. Um, and you can oh, yeah. use it to your advantage um, or not. <laughs> and yeah, and just but being aware of it, right? So I was aware and like, yeah. okay, how do I build a good community of friends and kind of the less is more. 
you know, I think that thing. And then just go, like, if I'm going to be here, like if I'm going to live in the US and I'm going to sacrifice like not seeing my family and the waves are really bad here um, compared to where I'm from, so it brings me a lot of joy still, then I need to be make sure like I wake up every morning with a purpose. Like, I wake up, I'm like, okay, how am I making money today or what am I doing to better myself? Or And, and I think that's pretty much the immigrant mentality. I think until I can tell the same with you, you know, the first time we met and like everything's purpose driven, right? Well, uh, with me, it's a little trickier because I think I've been, um, my challenge has been that I have changed directions a few times and I always look for this new purpose or not always, but I, I find a thing and I'm pushing towards it. And then I'm like, oh, that's not the thing. <laughs> so that happened several times with me. But that's been me, my challenge. Right. Like I had this like magazine that I work with and then I had this retail store then I was doing this then I was doing like this you know and I managed my body then but I when you're describing it it kind of sounds one like one thing is flowing into another and you're and you're kind of building on on one thing towards the other yes and no you know like one of the things I do like I don't ever have regrets but I wish I'd like again like I wish I'd like started something when I first moved here I'm like sort of building then right like because <clears throat> then I would have yeah. had 10 years on it right on that thing on the back of that verse like now I have a new business that's one year old. COVID's happened. I'm like, okay, shit, now what? You know, what does yeah. it look like at the end of this? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? So, but I think that's one of the great things in, in business is pivoting until you, mm-hmm. and you got to like, you can't just be like trying to jump onto the next trend or whatever's happening or opportunity, but like being able to pivot and go, okay, it's not working. I can do this. Okay, what, where do I want to go? And being interested in a lot is not a bad thing either. Thank you. You know, you've got, a, <laughs> you've got an appetite. That you've got a, <laughs> I think so too. Yeah, I think, and that's like part of being here. Like, you, it's, I always talk about, I tell young pe- people, be like, oh, what advice do you have for like young surfers or people that are leaving their surf career into the next stage of their life, right? Like, and mm-hmm. trying to figure out like, what does their rest of their life look like? And I'm always like, take like 10 different jobs until you find something you like. Like, treat it like dating, right? Like, you just go on a bunch of dates until you meet the right person. And that's the same thing. I think like, until you're mid 30s and that you haven't like felt enough pain like in terms of like employment, right? To know what you don't like. You have to really know what you don't yeah. like to know what you do like. You know, and that's what it's about, right? It's fine, figuring that out. A lot of people don't get to figure that out. Unfortunately, a lot of people yeah. work a shitty job because they're just trying to keep their head above water. So it's just like, to, it's being gentle with yourself and allowing yourself to try a bunch of stuff till you know, right? At mid thirties or like early thirties, you're like, okay, fuck doing that. Like, this is what I want to do. Well, know? yeah. Well, you already, you've, you've experienced pain kind of both ways. Like first you've done stuff that you know that you don't want to do, but you also see opportunities that you have maybe missed because you misinterpreted them as non-opportunities. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's, so, you've so had you, like you that. really value things in a different way. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's like being, so it's being aware of that, I think is the hardest part and then go, okay, what makes me happy? And that's, uh, I think you're probably doing too, like myself too, like we're doing all the stuff. I'm, I think I know what I really want to do. I think it involves helping people, but they're also building something, you know, and bringing people together, communities, that's what makes me happy. Um, mm-hmm. What that looks like and what business opportunity is, I'm not quite sure yet, but I know that's what I enjoy. Um, I don't think it's like nightclubs or anything like that. I think it's more mm-hmm. when people are bettering themselves and providing opportunity for people that wouldn't normally have it. Um, and then being like trying to figure out where it goes from there. And I think until you just start doing it in the US, because it goes so many different ways, right? Like it can, like somebody will come to me, might come to me and be like, oh, like, why don't you come do this event with us? And then it could spark into something else. And who knows, in like 10 years, I could be in education. And that's the beauty of the USA too, right? It's like all, all the different places it can go. It can just be like, 
you know, whatever you try. Yeah. But I want to get back a little bit to your immigration journey in terms of your personal growth. What is the nugget that you got out of it? I've, I've always like, I, I'm like not, not very educated. Um, I'm self-educated, you know, educated. Like I always used to say, I went to the university of life because uh, I got to travel and I like, do so much and get secondary education. I actually don't even have a primary education. I quit school when I was in year 10, year 12 because of surfing. Mm. But I was like, yeah, I was making like, more than my parents were surfing at that stage. Yeah. I was able to. My parents, like, my mom was mortified, but it was like, it's your decision to go and create it. And yeah. I was. Well, it happens a lot with athletes. Like, yeah, that, totally. And it's a sacrifice. But I think it's living here, the biggest sort of nugget of like wisdom and information is I, don't know, I, I heard this on a podcast the other day, and I, I kind of been telling myself a lot about it. And I think I would tell this to my 22 year old self or 23 year old self is if you live here, find find the person that you know that's that your friends are that's the most successful person that you know and ask them what is the worst like 10 or 15% of what they do and take that and do that because you'll always have a job. I think it's just getting in at the ground level and showing people that you're not afraid of hard work. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Like, I see a young person that comes in and you know, I hired so many kids through my store in these different places and the difference between the ones that are willing, like no job too big, no job too small. That's, that's the kind of attitude that I've always loved, you know, being intentional like on what success looks like. You know, like for me, it's success isn't being the CEO of some big company and not being able to surf and do the things that I enjoy. And I've, at times I've wanted that and thought that's what I need to be and like beat myself up and not mm-hmm. be there. But like for me, success is making enough to survive, having enough like money in the bank for like if a pandemic happens that we can thrive for a while and figure out what's next on the other side. But being able to go surf and owning a home and, and passport and being able to travel but here and there. So it's just seeing some real goals, I think, when you first get here and checking in. I love it. I think that's great advice. All of that. Yeah, I wish, I, I, wish I, I wish I'd taken my own advice, but my dad always used to tell me, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> well, now you can re-listen to your own yeah. voice every <laughs> night telling you that. I, I hate this. It's funny. I have, a, I have a podcast with Chad. We do around surfing and I, I can't even, he listens to them. I can't listen to them. I hate the sound of my own voice. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that was great. Thank you. That was really fun. Yeah, I, think so. I really appreciate it. No problem. That's it for today. It was a bit of a different episode this time. Let me know what you think. And please share the show with a friend. Don't just tell them. Actually send them the link. Email, text, messenger, WhatsApp. Whatever you do. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. All of us. Together. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful and productive week. Love you all. Peace. This is my country, my damn country, and it don't mean a thing.